Hello, and welcome to the Sales Compensation Experience Podcast, the ultimate destination for everything about sales compensation design and administration. This is where the complex becomes clear, where theory meets practice, where dark arts meet science. On the experience, we promise to keep things insightful, professional, and let's admit it, just a touch irreverent. So whether you're designing, administering, or getting paid on a sales compensation plan, we've got you covered. So buckle up, because it's time to get experienced. Hey, Scott, how are you today? Doing well, Justin. How are you? I'm doing well as well. Uh, on today's show, you know, wanted to cover two topics. Uh, the first one, an exploration or an analysis of a famous scene from a movie. And then secondarily, get into some survey results uh, that were recently published by one of the ICM companies. Let's go. I'm ready. All right. So famous movie. It's been 31 years since Quinn Gary, Quinn Ross came out as a movie. Uh, it's based on a, a play. Uh, but there was a very famous scene in that movie that I'm sure you remember. Uh, there's some Alec good Baldwin. scenes. Yeah, but there, there's there's some scenes that have uh, language that we you know probably don't want to share on this particular channel. But yeah, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Um, so October right was the 30th anniversary, and shame on us for letting that anniversary pass without more fanfare. But it's also around the time that I started my professional sales career. So there's you know, a little bit of personal affinity there. And as, as you mentioned, it was originally a, a uh, dramatic uh, uh, you know, stage play. David Mamat, of course, is the, the writer. And uh, for those that are not familiar with the movie, it's got an all-star cast, or at least the people that our generation um, you know, think of as all stars. So we have Alec Baldwin and Kevin Spacey and Jack Lemmon, uh, Ed Harris. So if if you haven't seen the movie, you know, really early in, you're saying, "Wow, there's a lot of a lot of a lot of heavy hitters." And then then there's the scene that I I think you're talking about. What is the scene? I'll, I'll sum it up uh, as ABC. Always be closing. And I think if you search on that on YouTube, you could probably go just watch it, that snippet of the movie. I think it's about seven minutes, eight minutes long. Uh, and it's essentially a monologue by Alec Baldwin. And he's trying to uh, inspire the, the sales team. And he rolls out what I would call uh, a sales contest of sorts. That's right. Yeah. And it's kind of motivation by fear. And, uh, you know, as I refamiliarize myself with the movie, and I've seen it many times, right? But I did on around the anniversary, I watched it again and, of course, you know, thoroughly enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking about, okay, what are the lessons? You know, what are the lessons here? And, you know, so I think that the idea of, you know, motivation by fear in today's, uh, you know, kind of more, more thoughtful, mindful environment is clearly dead, I think. You know, we, we can safely say that, right? So uh, Baldwin's approach to, you know, motivating the troops is probably, if we can assume that that's, that's not relevant anymore. Um, 
But it does, I think, hit on something that is, sadly, always going to be relevant. And that is dealing with difficult people. A-holes, if we can say that, right? Yeah, you know, you, you're always going to, unfortunately, you're always going to have circumstances where you've got to deal with somebody like Alec Baldwin's character. Um, so that's a good a good lesson, right? Is, all right, you're going to have them. They're going to pop up at some point, hopefully not as violent as and as in your face as that particular scene portrays, but uh, they're around. So, you know, have have some good some good tactics for dealing with those types of personalities. It's interesting that you say like this type of management style, uh, maybe the way you phrased it, doesn't have a place in today's business world, but I think it definitely exists. I think we've seen it this year with this clarion call from CEOs who may or may not be heavily invested in real estate, calling for a return to office and telling people, hey, if you don't want to come back to the office, uh, maybe there's not a place for you at this company. And then I think we also saw within the tech industry, for sure, uh, a number uh, of layoffs earlier in the year uh, that, that hit pretty hard in the sales uh, sales and marketing arena. But in the sales, you know, we saw some significant cuts to the organization. So when I went back and rewatched the scene, I'm like, it's, it, it's echoing uh, into 2023. And maybe it doesn't have a place, but I, I still see it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. And uh, so what, what was third place on what we would think of as yeah, a spiff? Let's, let's break down the spiff for the people that aren't familiar with the scene the people that don't have, uh, you know, the, the memory fresh at hand. Yeah. So Glenn so, Gary, Glenn Ross, the, the spiff, right? First yeah. place. It's a car. You know, yeah. Cadillac Eldorado. Cadillac, Second place. Yeah. Set a steak nice. Third place. There is no third place. You're, You're fired. fired. <laughs> right. You're fired. Yeah. That's a pretty high bar, right? Um, yeah. it, very limited participation, right? And small group of people, of course, in the real estate office there. But uh, yeah, I don't know that it really passes the test in terms of good spiff uh, or, you know, just contest. Yeah. But um, yeah, that uh, you're, you're fired is um, that's pretty harsh, but at least it's direct. No wishy-washy going on there, and you gotta gotta appreciate the the directness. Well, well, I was trying to think about like what are the you know what are the elements of this spiff that to do meet some idea of best practices, and I think you hit on one that very clear, simple. Uh, we're stack ranking people by performance. Whoever sells the most is it vinyl siding? Is that what the, that's what they were selling, right? Vinyl siding for houses. Whoever sells the most wins. Yeah, exactly. These were uh, uh, yeah. real estate investments. So buying a share of Rio Rancho, which was some you know right. residential development, I think out you know out in the desert somewhere, which you know sounds pretty good when you're in dreary uh, Chicago, which is you know where the the story is is portrayed. And uh, yeah, the, you know it's this promising kind of you know light at the end of the tunnel in a it otherwise very dark, um, you know, situation. Yeah. Now, totally a, little anecdote, a little, little anecdote, right. And I, I got this from internet movie database. I've got to credit my source here, but apparently the most expensive part of the production was the simulated 
rainfall because it's raining like in the whole movie. That's what I was just going to say is like throughout this whole speech that Alec Baldwin gives, there is this intense rain and thunder and lightning, you know, in the background. And I'm like, wow, what masterful sound engineering. The whole movie is top notch, right? Very well done. Okay, but so but but the spiff, it's clear. Yeah, I think there's a time frame put upon it. Yeah, so it's hard for me to gauge. Like, is it financially responsible for the company? You know, I don't know average sale or margins that they're making. Like, is a car a good reward for first place? Uh, You know, it's hard to say. Is it is it motivating? Many salespeople aspired to have a Cadillac. I mean, you know, we're talking. When, you know, early '90s, right? It's, uh, and I, I'm not even sure the story might have been older, right, than that. But uh, you know, there's yeah. a day, right, when a lot of people, salespeople, because you used your car, you know, to get around. Hey, in the early '90s, that's that's how I connected with my prospects and clients. I drove around everywhere. I used pay phones. Oh, ugh. but uh, yeah, that's that's what was happening back then. And you know, I I probably would have probably would have woke up a little earlier. And worked a little later for a Cadillac versus my Honda Accord. Yeah, I think I, I saw something recently. Uh, it was a study that Audi did, and I don't know the year. It must have been some time ago because every I think car dealership follows this this playbook now. But uh, Audi was struggling to hit their numbers selling cars, and somebody came in and, and what the, what they would do is you would go into the office first and discuss how much the cars cost and they take a look at your credit, that type of thing. And if you passed muster, they would go put you in the car and you go do a test drive. And, and what they found was that if people did the test drive first, the propensity of them, you know, wanting to buy a car goes up tremendously. And I think you'll see that if you go buy a car today, they're going to try to get you behind the wheel. They want you to touch it, feel it. Uh, Your brain's creating some sense of ownership. And uh, then you don't want to lose it, right? You want to yeah, you want to buy that car. How do I get you to leave today with this car? You don't want to you don't want to leave this this experience. Yeah. So, the, the, the other lesson I was going to say for me with just Glenn Gary Glenn Ross staying on point here is um, you know about bad leads, right? And the big premise of the movie is around the, these leads, and you have like the red leads, and I don't know the bad ones were yellow or something, right? And these are literally cards, right? It's not anything appearing on a computer screen. There were no computer screens back in 1992. CRM. Yeah, no CRM, right? These these cards. And, you know, it's that even in today's advanced age, um, nobody wins from bad leads, right? They get, they waste salespeople's time. They waste the prospect's time, creates anger. In the case of the movie, it actually led to theft, you know, so th- there's there's this backstory, right, where somebody steals the good leads. I mean, that's the you know how desperate things get. So, you know, I, I, I'm thinking, um, you know, difficult people, lesson one, and how to deal with them. Second is, you know, so, so much of it is about where we're focused, where you know these relatively expensive resources called salespeople, where they are focused, and how critical it is that these are good opportunities, so that we're not wasting people's time. And certainly there's a lot of, you know, a lot of energy being put into um, pulling information together so that, you know, sales professionals have good information to, to work from. 
we tie, I want to tie off like where I was going with the 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 Audi story. Oh yeah, I was I just thinking. Catch up. No, I was just thinking from the idea that if you're going to have a non-cash reward, like how do you make it more effective? Like the idea if I'm just telling somebody it's a car, make model brand, but you know level one, maybe you're showing somebody the picture or you're passing out. You know, if people are on on the office, you're it's a, something they can put up in their cube. But I've talked to other people over the years that have done similar types of contests where they're giving away a car and they had it like in the lobby Mm -hmm. uh, of their office. Right. So people could, you know, really that visceral touch feel, um, you know, kind of to promote the uh, to promote this non cash reward. How do you make it more valuable? But you hit upon something I didn't think about until you just said it. But this idea of so we have this spiff. And it's hitting on both the carrot and the stick, and the stick part's pretty, you know, severe consequences. You're going to get fired. And what that led to in the movie was unethical and illegal behavior of somebody going and stealing the leads from the company. And immediately, right, what pops to mind is the Wells Fargo story. I think if people, most people, are familiar with this idea that yeah, bad behavior. You have this sales culture and kind of unattainable goals. And people, there was consequences for not attaining the the perceived unattainable goal, and people did things that were unethical and, and illegal to try to make it. So that's maybe a lesson learned, right, from the movie in real life of when you're putting together a compensation plan and creating a sales culture, how aggressive do you want that to be? You know, and are you are you pushing, you know, past a limit or a boundary where people are going to do the wrong thing? Uh, for the company, for themselves, or for your prospects or clients. Yeah, yeah. Desperation, you know, kind of fosters into its own. So um, there you have it, right? Glengarry, Glen Ross, belated, you know, 30-year birthday. Um, you know, maybe, hey, for a sales leader, it's a good case study for the troops. Uh, you know, kind of like a book review, but a movie review. Let's watch it. Sorry for the abusive language. But, uh, you know, it's just part of the whole vibe. And, uh, you know, let's regroup and kind of talk about it. What does it mean in today's in today's world? So good. Yeah. Good sales flick. All right. What's that? Go the second? Let's go to the second topic. So there was a survey released by an ICM company called Quotapath. And, you know, a lot of these software companies uh, will raise their, their hand and say they have something to say around strategy. And this is some of them raising their hand and saying, hey, we're going to do a survey and try to see if we can, can you know, publish something around sales compensation plan design. So let me share my screen here. And we'll get up to yeah, the, so I get, uh, you know, for, top of the survey. Question, first question for me, Justin, is, um, all right, a survey. So how, and this is on sales comp plan design, as you said, how yep. frequently do you, do you see these come up? I mean, is this... Is this novel? Um, is it targeting a particular part of the market or industry that's underserved by surveys? I think we, we can all generally agree that, you know, it's important, right, to have market benchmarks as, a, as an input for uh, decisions. Um, yeah. I'm just wondering, yeah, what, you know, why, why this one? Why now? You know, I'm always a big, I'm a big fan of surveys. I love to to see data. I wish I had the underlying data for this particular survey, because as I read some of the results, I would like to do, uh, you know, another cut or some statistical analysis of the findings to see if 
my interpretation is the same as theirs. Mm -hmm. But I think that surveys to me, this idea of crowdsourcing answers to questions uh, helps people understand what are other people up to. And as a consultant, you know, over the last quarter century, uh, one of the most common questions I get asked are, you know, or is, what do people do around and then fill in the blank? And so with survey data, you, you get this view into what a bunch of people are doing around a particular topic. You know, I guess sometime in that 25 years, I came to the realization that oftentimes the surveys uh, pull back the covers on what's common practice versus what might be best practice. And so I always try to take these results and, and think about, well, how can you differentiate from the common practice? But no, this is a survey I ran across it uh, on uh, on the internet, uh, Reddit. I thought there were some interesting numbers in there, some that you know resonated, made sense, and some that maybe didn't so much. And so I wanted to share it with you and get some of your thoughts on it. Okay. Yeah, and it, it's um, you know surveying. I think it really has its place, right? Most of us would agree that um, it's good to have data from the market. Uh, to compare against internal data. It helps to define um, not necessarily good practice, but it gives kind of an index, you know, to work from. You know, it, it's funny, as I, I think of a couple extremes, right, where I've, um, you know, either tried to use survey data or have observed it being used or not used. You know, one extreme was, you know, going, this is like 2011, going back a few years, at Salesforce. And when I, I came into Salesforce as a consultant and, you know, early in my discovery, I'm like, well, where's the employee census? You know, I want to get a sense as to, you know, how they're recording information, where are the performance metrics. And then I'm like, well, where, where are the pay benchmarks and like, you know, the comparative ratios on base salary, targets and that kind of stuff. And so somebody in HR said, um, well, we don't do we don't do any benchmarking, any pay benchmarking for sales. And I'm like, okay. You know, a company of Salesforce aside, this is crazy. And um, so I understand, you know, there was a meeting, right, where you know, months before, where the HR, the comp team went in, they presented to Mark Benioff uh, benchmark information, you know, competitive pay benchmarks. And he, and I guess, the, you know, he kind of had a visceral reaction to that. And he said, um, you know, look, this is nonsense. I don't think the data you're showing here represents the market. We're the market. And it just, you know, torpedoed the whole meeting, right? So that's that's one extreme reaction that yeah. I stood went down. Uh, the other, you know, extreme is where leadership is so dependent on competitive benchmarks that they're, they're like spellbound. They can't make any kind of decision or move unless they've got a competitive benchmark for it. And so they'll, you know, lock on right to these numbers. So, so one example I have is from, you know, this is NetApp years ago. And, you know, the executives are saying, oh, yeah, 63, 63. Like, what is this 63 number you're talking about? Well, apparently it was a benchmark provided to them from a consulting firm on how many people on average earn credit on a deal. And so I guess, you know, the assumption was that it was too high. 63 is not good, you know, what it should be wasn't clear, you know, but the, just that number carried on a whole life of its own. And, you know, was yeah. frequently 
discussed, you know, in the upper rungs of the company. And so, you know, that that's an example, right, where it's kind of, you know, benchmarks have really gone beyond, you know, utility. And, uh, you know, they just become like the, the sole, you know, point around which people are going to operate, which, of course, is, you know, isn't good either. No, it's just to me, it's a data input. Right. And I, th I always think yeah. that corporate or business context matters. And the idea of just blindly taking a number and saying we should apply that to our business, uh, that doesn't make a lot of sense it's to me. Right? That's, that's, yeah. right? Yeah. So, yeah. so what are some of the inputs here? What uh, you, You've got three up on the screen. Well, what's this, this, what's... this one on the left, right? It, it, this is one that was a little baffling to me. In my mind, I started to create this story, right, where the, the, the figure here is 90% of sales leaders – don't trust their sales comp structure. Hmm. And, th and then we're just kind of, I was like, really? I was That's like, pretty where, dire. Where, yeah, where were these leaders in the design process? Did, yeah. did they get steamrolled by finance or what happened here for 90% of sales leaders? Don't like the structure? That, I, I just didn't quite, didn't, yeah. didn't make Boy, sense. 90% of 300, so 300 leaders. Sales are, yeah, that's... That's uh, that's pretty discouraging. Now, you know, I see that and I kind of wonder, and you're alluding to this, where, you know, where are these leaders? Who, you know, how are they engaged in the process? What companies are we talking about here? What industries? Um, you know, something tells me these leaders are not in the country of Japan. In other Asian countries where they're, uh, you know, culturally tends to be a high degree of trust even to the point of, you know, I've done interviews before with sales leaders and sales professionals and, you know, various Asian countries. And yeah, they're I think pretty hesitant to be critical of the hmm. plan, you know? Yes. Yeah, so I think there's a bit of unpacking on this one to kind of understand, all right, what, what, what are we talking about here? Which, which sales leaders, you know, just give me a little bit of context because yeah. that does seem a bit such a high percentage. Yeah. Yeah. Now at like 90% is, is essentially. Yeah. If this is my company and I'm saying, Hey, Justin, 90% of my leaders don't trust the sales comp structure. Yeah. So then what got to go back to the drawing board. Yeah. What's your advice? Uh, well, there, I mean, I think anytime there's a trust issue and again, there's a statistic on the other side about being paid fairly, but it's again, the word trust. Mm. I feel like something went wrong in the communication and rollout phase of this plan to where people maybe don't understand, you know, the why behind the plan, uh, how they're supposed to get there, you know, in terms of a, a quota goal or a target and kind of what are they, you know, what is the company doing to support them uh, throughout the plan year? I think that, um, you know, I talked to, Mark Donalo of Sales Globe not too long ago. And he, you know, one of his phrases that he likes to, to use is I'll paraphrase that when a company rolls out the plan, they're sending a, a message to the field. And I just don't think that maybe I, I feel like when I read this, a lot of companies are failing. Yeah. Yeah. And so delivering that message in a way that builds trust. I was in a class recently, University of Chicago. Uh, behavioral economics class. And one of the, the ideas that came up, so this idea where people don't trust things, 
is you need to, to add, give them the idea of the procedural justice. What were all the steps that went into getting a final comp plan? And what were, what were the steps that went in the math that were there to get to, I would say, a quota number? And when people understand the process of something, uh, they're much more trusting of the outcome than when it's a black box and it's just foisted upon them of, here's the plan, here's your number, here's your territory. They have a lot of questions and they're still going to start telling themselves some stories that, uh, you know, may or may not be true. Yeah. 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 There's, there's some transparency, you know, that's involved and for whatever reason, a lot of, a lot of companies don't go there. Um, there's also, you know, part, part of the outcome or the output is, you know, to, to operate at a level that inspires trust. So, what doesn't inspire trust is, you know, you say, hey, we're going to, you know, roll out the new plans and the new quotas by the sales kickoff. And, you, you know, miss, you miss that, you know, first year, second year. So saying you're going to do something, not doing it. That's a, you know, I told my kids at a young age, right? That's a good way to lose, you know, the trust of people. Also, you know, the quality of the delivery, right? The document or how it appears on the screen and, you know, how it's communicated and the feedback loop, you know, the effort at which the, you know, people who know how the plan work, you know, the effort of hearing back from people, okay, how is this making sense? What doesn't make sense? Um, so yeah, there's, there's a pretty high standard, I think, for operating at a level that inspires trust versus we're just going to put it out there. It's going to be legally compliant. And, um, you know, I don't know, the sales managers are kind of responsible for, you know, making the making the thing work. Yeah. Yeah. If that, was, if that said reps, it would make a lot more sense to me. The idea that it's the sales leaders is where I'm still uh, trying to wrap my head around. Yeah. And I mean, if the sales leaders don't trust it, do the reps, that would kind of be a, a weird dichotomy, right? I mean, yeah. you know, sales leaders kind of own the motivation. They're responsible for motivating the reps. So that, that would be, that would yeah. be kind of weird. So what, what's this, this one in the middle here? So 44%, yeah, 44% of sales reps aren't motivated by their comp plans. That one made a little bit more sense to me, at least in my mind, where I said, well, I know last year, uh, 2022, I saw, again, survey numbers, uh, a good one that was crowdsourced. Um, I'm trying to think of a name of the community now, uh, but they have you know tens of thousands of reps kind of saying, where do they end up quota-wise? Mm-hmm. And quota attainment in 2022, abysmal, probably the worst I've seen uh, in the course of my career. I saw numbers, you know, anywhere low 40s from some survey data. Uh, Bravado is the sales community. Mm-hmm. The Bravado people, their their quota attainment, you know, as reported by reps, were in the mid 20 percentile last year, mm-hmm. uh, making the number. And so when I see something like this, I'm like, okay, if that's the reason, this idea that, hey, I have a total target comp that I was pitched to for me to join the company. And if something less than half the reps are in the money uh, on an annual basis, I could see where about half the reps aren't super motivated by their comp plans. And I think if you add in the idea that there's always going to be some percentage of the reps that don't really fully understand the comp plan, um, 
That, that one I, that one made sense to me. But what, yeah. what was your first impression? Well, yeah, I think because of what you said, it's reasonable if you you know link or do an overlay on this with quota achievement distribution or uh, target pay realization. And you know we're you and I track these you know these trends around those those two metrics, and um, yeah, I mean they tend to average right now, not notwithstanding some exceptional years of twenty one and twenty two, but they they tend to average around you know fifty percent, maybe forty five percent of the reps are hitting quota. Um, you know, they, it, it, I think it's what inspires a lot of companies and comp professionals to say, oh, you know, if we've got a bunch of reps, what we think too many who aren't hitting quota, not earning their target pay, we're going to, we're going to make them whole, you know, by doing some spiffs or some other things. So you get this, you get this phenomenon, right? Where you got a bunch of reps that haven't hit their quota, but they're still earning or exceeding target pay. But, you know, when I see that, I I always, you want to kind of speak up and say, look, even if they're earning their target pay, they still haven't hit quota. And there's a psychological you know, I think misfortune, which is I'm not winning. You know, if I if I haven't hit quota, I'm not I'm not hitting the number. And I think that's particularly dire and consequential for the group of people who are between, I don't know, you know, some striking distance of goal that they fell short. So you know, 85 to 99 or something like that. And why do I say that? Well, because they, they've got enough motivation and confidence, right, from from being in that zone, but they just didn't do it. And so they're probably motivated, but they might not be motivated to get the job done here. So if I go to another organization, you know, I'm I'm 90% here, I think I can be 100%, 105% there. That's different than somebody who's at 60 and they're like, wow, gee, you know, I am so far from hitting the number. Something's just like fundamentally wrong. And maybe it is me, yeah. you know, and maybe I need to just kind of hunker down or hide out or, you know, quiet, quit, whatever it is. Yeah. But, you know, you're not, you're not feeling too good about your, your situation. Two follow-up questions on that, right? Uh, the first one being, what percentage of reps do you think should be participating in the plan or making the number what percent of reps do you, do you feel actually hit quota in any given organization? Well, I want more than half. I mean, think about it. You know, you get slightly more than half, 60%. Let's get to it. Well, yeah, I think, I think it's reasonable. If you're going to push it beyond 60, then you probably have some finance stakeholders that are thinking things are a little out of balance, right? But if you've got more winners than losers, just, just to put in real blunt, you know, black and white terms, right? Um, that's a better situation than than the the reverse, right? So you you want a yeah. winning organization. And you want enough people who can demonstrate success under the plan, so that they they inspire those who are below. Um, but the, you know, w- with so many things, there, there's got to be a balance. So to say, yeah, we want eighty percent of our reps to hit quota. Well, that's that's a very exceptional circumstance that. You know, I think in a lot of cases, the way plans work and the way they're designed, it, you know, probably isn't cost effective for the company. No. And maybe it's not even necessary. I think it'd be, it'd be a weird type. I mean, it might be, again, corporate context might be right for a particular industry or type of company where 
like the the revenue is very predictable by rep, and there's not a huge range of dispersion uh, of performance within the reps. I could say that maybe eighty percent would make sense, but to me, like for a lot of industries I've seen over the years, Pareto principle, you know, twenty percent of the reps responsible for about eighty percent of the revenue. You get to 50% of the reps, it's 90, 94% of the revenue. You can't pay 80% of the sales force at Target uh, and have the math make sense in my mind if if you have, you know, uh, differentiated levels of performance within the sales force. But I do see on LinkedIn a lot of comments. So, you know, when people have, you know, when somebody says, oh, 40% of the reps make quota. And in, in your mind, in my mind, we're like, well, that could be 10 15, 20% higher and they'd be in good shape. Or I think a lot of people in this, in this, uh, with a sales role are thinking it should be 75, 80%. I'm like, I think that'd be a, a unique or not unique, but a exception rather than a rule. Yeah. Well, yeah we, don't, we don't see it much. Right. And um, yeah, I get, you know, the other thing here with this 44%, this particular stat, and, and I think, it, you know, it's a good reminder, right. That as you socialize, benchmark info, you need to you know, kind of understand how that fits with other similar benchmarks. And so, you know, my first reaction of the 44%, you know, sales reps aren't aren't motivated by their comp plan. And we what we're talking about with quote achievement and pay realization, that, that probably makes sense, right? But then, you know, I'm thinking of other surveys and I was trying to look up on the fly here and I failed, not a good multitasker, to pull up the Alexander Group's 2023 sales compensation survey. They've been doing this for like 20 years now. So it's a good, it's a good survey. Um, but there, there is a metric in there that is around, you know, kind of like perception of plan effectiveness. And, you know, this could be from the sales leaders or maybe it's from HR, some, somebody other than the reps, right? Yeah. But where I'm going is if, you know, you, you've got like the majority of the, the senior leadership thinking that the plans are effective, and you've got, you know, almost, you know, half or the majority of the reps thinking that it's not. Disconnect. Yeah. So what, disconnect. what is that? So if I, I go forward with this 44% and then, you know, like a finance leader, yeah. HR, somebody says, hey, no, I, you know, I'm looking at this stat from AGI, says that 70% of the companies say that their plans are effective. I'm pretty happy with the plan. Yeah, yeah. How do you explain that difference, right? So, you know, there's, there's probably no like one perfect answer but uh, just having having yeah. an answer is probably a good idea. I, you know, I don't know what it is, but uh, I will say this. You know, I've been on a soapbox now for about two years about the idea, and other people have. You know, I'm I'm way to the bandwagon. Uh, but the idea of including the reps in the design process in some way, shape, or form, and bare minimum, the idea of a survey. I think this is a great question to ask on a rep survey. Like, how motivated are you by the current plan? And maybe try to have you know, so the, some Likert scale of answers to, to guess why it might be, but, you know, leave some, some room for them to explain, like, what, why aren't they motivated uh, by the comp plan? Is it, is it solely the idea that they can't be, get in the money or is the plan too complicated? Is it, is it, is, are, did you create a plan with a bunch of measures that they have no influence or prominence over? Uh, that'd be pretty unmotivating. I'm sure there's some reasons why, and and to me, it's like you know, I think for companies that aren't getting that two-way feedback and communication with the reps, maybe that's what this statistic uh, should inform them that they probably should be talking to the reps uh, around plan design. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you, you hit on something I think is really important. And that is, okay, so these are numbers, right? And we all know, right, that you, you need to have some, some qualitative info behind this. And, you know, the importance of having stories to accompany, you know, the, the numbers. So, you know, what would be great, right? If I, I'm going to use this is, is if I have, you know, some, some quotes, some stories from reps that speak to why is it that they aren't motivated and that that information is going to carry a lot more weight and probably have more staying power make a lot more sense to the audience than you know will this 44 percent or the the 90 percent yeah stories we want to get into we want to get into the last one it might be a quicker topic uh we, we could you know i just thought i was going to try to tie this artfully tie this back to our first topic of glengarry glenn ross which is a, a quote you know, from Ricky Roma. So that's Al Pacino's character. Okay. My, my gosh, you know, you got to love anybody that can take the seat of the Godfather is pretty talented, right? But so Ricky Al says in, in Glenn Garrigan Ross, he says, you never open your mouth until you know what the shot is. <laughs> so that, that's what we're talking about here, right? If we're we're going to use this information. If I'm, going, if I'm going on the record with this, what, where am I going? What's my shot? Yeah. Okay. Topic three. It feels low. <laughs> I did an informal survey on LinkedIn just asking uh, people who had a selling role uh, if they had ever been paid incorrectly in their sales career. And and it was 100% of people who had been in a selling role had been paid incorrectly over the course of their career. The only people who had who indicated that they had not they had no, when I went and looked at their profile on LinkedIn, I couldn't find a sales role uh, in their career history. So I wasn't sure why they had answered the poll question. But I think that uh, you know, most the most you're in sales long enough, you're getting paid incorrectly. And I think trust once broken is hard uh, to, to build back up. But I, I think that this makes sense to me. A lot of reps get paid incorrectly. Yeah. There's a gentleman on LinkedIn right now, Dan Goodman, uh, who, you know, He's a big advocate for reps getting paid correctly. Uh, he posts up, you know, a story two, three times a week that are all pretty horrific, right? In terms of reps getting paid incorrectly, or at least getting paid incorrectly to the perception of what they should be paid, which goes into the idea of trust. It doesn't have to be; they could be paid accurately and still not trust they're being paid accurately. Uh, type of thing. So, I mean, seventy-five percent not surprising. Actually, felt low to me hmm. to a certain degree yeah relative um, to your your 100 percent yeah you know? and yeah i've been i've been there right 30 years ago um you know the comp plan we used was pretty complex i didn't have a lot of money to to waste you know i was living in san francisco i had high rent and um yeah, I needed to make every every dime that was uh that was available to me so Did i spent a lot on your own I did. Yeah. And it took a lot of time, you know, of course, you know, we, we know the shadow accounting thing and stuff like that, but uh, yeah, there were some times that there were some errors and that's a big bummer, right? Because I just had to allocate time to, you know, audit my pay. And cause the plan was complex, you know, there was no like automated reports or anything. I just literally got yeah. a paycheck, you know? Um, yeah. So not, uh, not, not a, you know, yeah. trust. Trustworthy. My takeaway on this one, though, could be a whole nother episode. Um, but 
you know, I always, I tell companies, uh, you have a, a moral, legal, ethical obligation to pay your reps correctly. You know, set the bar at 100% accuracy and do what it takes to get there. I think they're the only people uh, within the organization that have to do like what you said, of track it, do their own, have their own spreadsheet, do their own accounting, spend a lot of time trying to figure out, did they just get paid correctly or not? And a lot of other folks in the organization, that just doesn't even make sense to them. You know, their direct yeah. deposit hits and it's correct. After I get set up the first time, it's, you know, like a toaster, it makes toast. Uh, with reps, it's different. And I think that people, you know, on the comp administration side, accept uh, something less than a Six Sigma or a 100% accuracy in paying reps. And then sales team shouldn't put up with that. Uh, corporate leadership shouldn't allow that. And companies just need to do better. Yeah, unacceptable, right? It's just, that's the red line you don't want to cross. Yeah. Well, Scott, I think we're nearing the end of our time together for this particular episode. All right. It's been um, fun, Justin. Yeah. No, I, I always appreciate learning something new. And I think every time we chat, uh, I, I hear a story or a fact that makes me think about something a little bit differently. And uh, yeah, I appreciate our, our time together today. All right. Good seeing you. And that wraps up another episode of the Sales Compensation Experience. Our goal with the experience is not just to share knowledge, but to spark conversations. So don't be shy. If you have feedback, questions, topic ideas we should cover, or a guest you think we should interview, let's continue the conversation at our exclusive LinkedIn private community called the Sales Compensation Experience. We hope you'll join us there. Until then, keep challenging the status quo and never stop learning.